Unfamiliar, the show that remembers Sergeant Slaughter announced his support of Saddam Hussein just prior to Survivor Series 91 by appearing in a series of vignettes next to famous American landmarks and saving Hacksaw Jim Duggan from an attack by the Nasty Boys. I'm Gareth Hirons, and joining me today to talk about some things that he remembers and no one ever seems to is writer and TV's claggers expert Tim Worthington. Tim, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, what I'm up to at the moment is I'm appearing as the guest on this for once because I'm just about to launch a new book that I've been working on for quite a while now and is now actually ready called The Lark's Ascending. In case you don't get that from the title, it's actually a history of comedy on Radio 3 and you're probably thinking, comedy, Radio 3, what? People have to have some idea of what I'm actually talking about if they're going to read it. (laughs) (laughs) I do find that's quite handy. I can assure listeners I've had a read of the new book. It's fantastic. Couldn't resist the opportunity to have Tim expand on some of the subjects therein. So, now that we've established the format, and reassured the listeners to some extent that I haven't staged a violent takeover of Looks Unfamiliar, which I'm not ruling out in the future, let's have a listen to a clip of our first subject. drumming there Tim but what have we just heard? That was well this is actually rather than from Radio 3 it's from the third programme which was kind of the precursor to Radio 3 but I'll come back to that in a minute I mean it was when in 1967 they relaunched all the radio stations and you know the light programme was split into Radio 1 and Radio 2 and the home service became Radio 4 Radio 3 had sort of been the third programme which was very serious it was all the heavyweight drama heavyweight documentary speech content and heavyweight classical music and opera but they would always have which is something that's covered a lot in the book because a lot of people like somebody we're coming back to later did things like this but they had interval talks where it could be anything from a professor talking about the movement of dust particles between planets to comedians being funny about the lead violin or whatever but this on this occasion there was a guy who used to broadcast quite a lot on the third program called Hans Keller, who a lot of people might know from an interview that they only ever show the first 30 seconds of, where it's <laughs> that amazing performance on, it's actually BBC One, people think it's BBC Two, The Look of the Week, which is an art show in the mid-60s, where Pink Floyd, when they are just starting out, I think they had only had the one single out at that point, they did an amazing in-studio performance of Astronomy Domine, and then set down their instruments very politely and walk over to, you know those stools you have in they used to have in the 60s where you look short of standing up and you did sitting on them. <laughs> and they have a chat to Hans Keller who immediately says, my first question is, why does it have to be so terribly loud? And it's often mistaken as a bit of patronising pomposity. But actually, you know, if you watch it, Roger Waters and Sid Barrett on the verge of cracking up laughing. But they do have a longer chat where he's quite, actually quite sympathetic towards them and says, you're doing something that doesn't sound interesting to me, but is different to pop music. Have you had hostile reactions? And he seems quite upset and sympathetic when they say, you know, yeah, we've had things thrown at us and, you know, a Daily Mail aren't keen on us and things like that. <laughs> Which so- by now is de rigueur <laughs> for any rock band. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting application, that, of how, how much context matters. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, with him, he's, he's much more interesting figure than you'd think, because he was... You know, in his own way, he was, you know, he was pompous, he was establishment, he considered himself very arty, but he's a wartime immigrant, and he had a lifelong love of football. He used to sneak football terminology into his academic work. It's a thing he developed called functional analysis, where he always called it FA. He's a huge fan of Tottenham Hotspur, and a couple of years ago, when I was researching him, I found a Spurs forum where people were talking about him and they were saying like oh I used to see him on the TV talk about some complicated thing but to me he was always hands from the match so this stuffy arts presenter was down every Saturday with his rattle and his woolly hat (laughs) standing with the ordinary bloke saying come on you Spurs that is quite amazing really he used to like to try and wind up the establishment and one thing was this where it's all become a bit lost in his 
history, but he seems to have had some kind of conflict over reactions to his interval talks. So he and, I forget her name, but one of the Radio 3 producers just hit a load of percussion instruments randomly, broadcast it as part of an interval talk, and said it was this composer, Piotr Zak. And a lot of critics... Now, see, this just shows you what the classical establishment like. They've tried to retrofit it and say, oh, well, they were taken in, but you, you have to look at... He failed because they all were critical of Piotr Zak's work. And like, no, they were still taken in. doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, they all feigned familiarity with his work. It wasn't merely an indication of it being a hoax. And then a couple of months later, there was... I've never heard this, unfortunately, but I believe... It was kind of, it started off on the third premise as if it was a documentary about Peter or Zach, and then halfway through, there's the admission that it's a hoax by Hans Keller. <laughs> and, but this is a recurring thing that does happen a lot, that quite serious people play pranks on the critical assumption through Radio 3, and there's a lot of anger. I mean, later on, there's a thing about the Radiophonic Workshop on some early music instruments that they gave fictitious names to, gave a performance of what, if you listen very closely, is kind of a, an odd Baroque version of pop goes the weasel <laughs> and again the critic and the listener was fooled by it and a couple of years later he laid into again this is covered in the book a comedy play on Radio 3 that the Radio Fundic Workshop did the music for and the producer wrote in saying what's the matter still bothered that we fooled you with uh, however you say pop goes the weasel in ancient Britain but you know. <laughs> I do love a good needling of pomposity. Yes, dare I say, these days it's even more, uh, even more needed. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I did my earlier book about Radio One, of all people, of all the people from Radio One that could have said this, it was Adrian Just, the wacky Saturday afternoon comedy presenter. Because I finished by asking everyone, "Do you think there should be more comedy on Radio One?" And people had reservations. I remember Mark Radcliffe saying, "Well, there should be, but you have to listen to the average Radio Four sketch show to know that there's not." that much good around which is a fair comment but Adrian just was like yeah there needs to be because you know we've got all these politicians and celebrities and identities saying whatever they like and nobody challenges them and we should all be having a laugh at their expense I was like wow okay I didn't expect you to say that but thank you and that's still not happened really we're still in that but imagine the outcry if you know a modern equivalent of Hans Keller did something like that and that would be BBC fakery it would somehow alienate both extremes of the political spectrum at once even though it's got nothing to do with them and we do need more things like that happening I think one thing that I have noticed from your book is that Radio 3's comedy or, or the third programme in this this case is comedy often poked fun at the foibles of the station itself and its listeners and I think that's an interesting pattern it's, it's almost like most of the stuff that I've read about they almost seem to be attacking their own audience but also respecting them to get the joke yes i mean it must be one of those things of i kind of see it as equivalent almost contemporaneous in some ways to monty python's flying circus where a lot of what people don't realize a lot of that humor was born out of them just you know working as jobbing scriptwriters, constantly being told that needs a punchline there that needs you know so they messed about with that you can't have the end credits there you know that sort of thing and um, the whole thing about how quickly their names went by in david frost's end credits so they wanted to mess with the credits and you know when you work at Radio 3 it's going to be the same thing again and again a lot and you're going to want to sort of change that around well one brilliant thing if you're talking about making fun of the audience was Hans Keller when it moved from the third programme to Radio 3 he fell out with them and he gave an interview and said he had no desire to be associated with a daytime music station (laughs) (laughs) oh that must have stung (laughs) (laughs) that's just the most brilliantly waspish thing you could have said you know like oh, that Vivaldi is like Muzak to me there's something very Wreathian about the uh, third programme you mm. have to wonder whether uh, I mean obviously we can't put ourselves in a scenario where the BBC is, is building up from, from zero sort of today mm. but you would have to imagine there would be nothing of this sort of content if it were not already established really the difference between the third programme and Radio 3 is marked which is why I always call it a precursor rather the rebranding you might think Radio 3 is serious and pompous and stuffy but it's got nothing on the third programme I mean the very few actual because I cover them quite quickly one part of the very few actual comedy programmes 
on the third programme a very, I'm not saying they're not funny, but a series to the extent that they've forgotten even in the careers of the people. Like Peter Sellers did one called Third Division. I'd never heard about that until I started looking into this. Yeah, that's Peter Sellers while he was famous as well. David Nobbs wrote a series very early on called Hard Luck Hall. You know, oh, I wonder where that name was reappropriated. But you know, that, that never, even in his autobiography, he seems to be quite fond of it, but he sort of skirts over it very quickly. Hmm. There was, I can't remember the name of the top of my head, but it's covered in the book, a thing with Bernard Cribbins as a man with voices in his head. That's not exactly what you'd always associate with Bernard Crippins. There's a <laughs> Joe Orton's first ever broadcast play. You might quibble about whether he's comedy or not, but I've had some of the biggest laughs I've ever had at Joe Orton plays. But that's just reflective of the whole tone of the third programme, I think, that it came with that imprimatur that it was for the cultured classes. Mm. And Radio 3, I think, relatively, comparatively, sort of did away with that and there was a bit more willingness to accept that there was a wider world out there and that sometimes, just sometimes, people might chortle a bit of things. And we're going to take a look at that wider world now. We're going to leave Hans Keller on the terraces and head off back to school. Oh, and what a pity it was that Schubert never managed to finish that joke. (laughs) Well, that's all the comedy on Radio 3 for today and now... This is the Half-Open University. There now follows part 17 of our degree course in the Practical Histories. Well, highbrow stuff there, to be sure. Tim, what was the name of that fine educational institution? Well, that was Professor Jim Einstein introducing us all to the Half-Open University, which... Do people even really know what the Open University is now? I, I think it's probably worth an explanation. Although yeah. it's, it was such a such a big part of our lives growing up. Well, it was, and that's precisely where this came from, was it was, I think, effectively, it was launched in 1968, but it didn't start operation properly until the early 70s. No, that's certainly, that's when the BBC broadcast started. It was a scheme that allowed people to do a degree, you know, revolution at the time, do a degree without attending a university. You know, it was aimed at, I suppose working parents or the businessman in his suit and tie and that sort of thing and it was quite you know it was quite a revolutionary thing at the time and a lot of well-known people studied with degrees through it as well but the broadcasting for it was on i think radio 3 and radio 4 out of normal broadcasting hours and bbc 1 and bbc 2 out of normal broadcasting hours it always felt like kind of if you saw it like a kind of secret television because it was in that tiny little text at the bottom of the radio times listing with impenetrable academic names. And then you turn it on and be something that was clearly made in 1973 with a bloke who looked like he'd escaped from the Mothers of Invention with massive curly hair and those real 70s glasses, drawing triangles with percentages next to them on the flip board and very odd animations to illustrate points and odd music. And there's also the thing of, you didn't really get this on the radio, but there was that, the idem for it was the Open University Shield, which had seemed to sit still for about millennia and then suddenly when you were least expecting it it started moving with that scary fanfare you know like I do know I know people who were actually frightened of that as children it had a feel all of its own it's it's unlike anything yes I've I've experienced outside of the open university it's it's absolute madness I mean so this was it was also on the radio wasn't it yeah and that that's kind of brings us to what we're going to be discussing yeah well, this was basically David Benwick and Andrew Marshall who went on to write a number of successful series jointly and later separately. I mean, they were responsible for Hot Metal, Whoop's Apocalypse, Alexis Sales stuff, all kinds of things like that. And later, individually, they did One Foot in the Grave and 2.4 Children, amongst many other successes, Jonathan Creek, things like that as well. But this was their first real foot in the door. I think they've been involved with a couple of other programmes like Weekending and the next programme follows almost immediately. Zany, topical sketch shows. But for this, they'd obviously heard the Open University broadcasts and had laughed at themselves in that kind of early 70s proggy way and just wrote this script poking gentle fun at 
the constant plugs for the pamphlets you could buy, the poor dramatisation of the examples and so on. And it was really unexpectedly funny. It did actually go out, I think, in a gap. The first one, at least, went out in a gap in the schedules in the actual academic slot. Yes. I think Study on Three, was it? Study on Three, yes. Yeah. Usually reserved for educational programming, and they were uh, uh, essentially a programme short. Yes. Uh, I don't think anybody really expected that the proposal to have a comedy show mm. that listeners may mistake for an educational show would actually get off the ground, and yet it did. Well, yes, I mean, and if you look at the original Radio Times billing for it, you would have to look twice to realise it was a comedy programme. It was not trying to fool people, but it was written in appropriation of the style of the regular educational programming. They're all billed as researchers and professors and so on, all of the cast and all of the crew. And I do wonder if a lot of people were fooled by it, but it seems to have been really popular, that's the thing. And they did commission a second one, but because of the way Radio 3 worked, it took forever to get broadcast. And in the interim, someone at Radio 4 said, I like this idea, but it's a bit niche. What about if it was just about a general correspondence course? Yeah, because there were loads of those magazine adverts around there. say, I can increase your mind 8,000 times. <laughs> Send off from Professor Alan Allenson's Magic Brain Programme, <laughs> guaranteed not to work, or you know, whatever it was. And so they came up with Professor Emil Burkis with his study series, The Burkis Way. This ran for years and years on Radio 4. It's almost forgotten about that. It was a real cult thing at the time. People used to turn up in gangs to recordings with homemade t-shirts and things like I attend radio recordings the Burkis way and so on. <laughs> it's a different subject each week and they developed the one actual student was Eric Pode of Croydon who was like a disgusting old man who would just appear like randomly in the middle of sketches and say there'd be a ballroom sketch and say who is this lovely dancing girl It's like Eric Pode of Croydon <laughs> and it was one of the most inventive things ever I mean Armando Yanucci who we're going to mention again later Whenever he's prompted to talk about his influences, he always says, you know, hitchhikers, radioactive. He always mentions the Burkis Way as well. I don't know whether he heard the Half Open University or not, but he might have done, because he was quite classically inclined, even as a very young child. Well, I also thought the setup sounded a little bit like one of my very favourite TV comedy programmes of recent years, which is Look Around You. Yes! Um, which yeah. had a very similar approach, albeit to the OU's television programmes, mm. and then to Tomorrow's World in the second uh, yeah. second series. I did wonder if this might have been an influence on that. It's quite possible, because Robert Popper certainly knows his archive comedy, and, you know, Peter Serafimovich does as well, because you don't forget he started in a lot of quite obscure radio comedy programmes. I mean, who actually remembers the knowledge Radio 1's <laughs> spoof of uh, quality rock magazines? I think that might have been his first real job, alongside the music parodies done by a young man called Murray Gold. Whatever happened to him? Oh, too much. <laughs> too much happened to him. So that sounds like a great show, where you get all that and an unfortunate frog to boot. So what's not to like? But who needs education when you can make a living treading the boards, just like the characters in our next selection? Twelve months ago, I first heard of Lyripet in the twilight hall of temporary residence I inhabit with my fellow forgotten men of letters, science and the arts, awaiting the biography that will transform our obscurity into renown, the boxed set of recordings that will translate us to one of the many mansions where there are draft-proof doors and drinkable port. New light, it says here on the composer Martin Mendel, 1870-1947, and his neglected role in the renaissance of English music. My informant was Nigel Scrote, until recently a junior fellow of all hallows, ill-bred and undernourished. His face cratered like the Menin Road, with acne. He is always first to the times, which arrives a day late, with the crossword completed. Right, I'll level with you. That's actually Broomhouse Reach there due to low sound quality on the clips of the show that we're mm. actually going to be talking about. So, Tim, tell us about a similar, somewhat lamented show. Well, yes, Blood and Bruises. I mean, the reason Broomhouse Reach was used there is it does link directly into it, but there's a wider story of throughout the 80s, Radio 3 actually wanted to have a hit sitcom. Believe it or not, there were loads of attempts at it. It started with in a 
very weird way. There was a series called Patterson, which was written by Malcolm Bradbury and Christopher Bigsby, and it was based on a character who'd been a minor player in two of their earlier successes, which was the Play for Today, the After Dinner Game, and the novel and later TV series, The History Man, both set in higher education in the post-radicalisation era. And Patterson is a sort of ordinary, affable lecturer who's a bit backgroundy, and they thought there's potential in him. Let's put him in a series where he goes to a new university that's full of mad people. He doesn't know what to do when his life falls apart. The only thing is, if you're familiar with Malcolm Bradbury's work, you know that somebody's life falling apart isn't just the door handle comes off in their hands. It's a wild tale of all kinds of sexual intrigue, all kinds of financial misdemeanours, and whether or not the head of the department ever owned a lawnmower or not, which is a massive plot point. But... <laughs> It was done for Radio 4, and you know, it had quite high-profile cast produced by Jeffrey Perkins, who was an up-and-coming star of radio comedy at that point, and they listened to it and said, we can't broadcast this. And somebody at Radio 3, who was a fan of Malcolm Bradbury, heard about this and thought, well, we'll put that out. I would say it got a largely positive reception. It wasn't universally well-received, but it did have its fans, and it was immediately repeated on Radio 2. They then went on from that because that had been surprisingly successful for what it was. They kept launching new sitcoms, one of, well, two of which were written by a guy called Colin McLaren, who wrote a lot of, not strictly comedy, but humorous speech content for Radio Theory around that point. I mean, his background was in academia, but not as an academic. I think he was a librarian or a researcher or something. And so a lot of things were about, I think he did a series of monologues by an elderly art collector, that sort of thing. Broomhouse Reach was the first one, which is about a dead composer who's annoyed that nobody remembers his work. And he starts haunting an academic, trying to get him to <laughs> find greater exposure to him. But, you know, that starts really becoming postmodern because the academic and his assistant appear on actual Radio 3 shows with the actual hosts, trying to drum up interest in this ignored composer. And they also have an ally in it, who's a character called Liz, played by Helen Atkinson Ward, who's a kind of... You know that sort of left-wing activism theatre that you got then that you don't get anymore? And she's very much immersed in that, and she... I can't say she helps them, she's more of a hindrance, really. (laughs) But she then got... When Broomhouse Reach didn't really take off, despite being really, really good, I love that series. It is... Even just sonically, it's brilliant. When they walk into rooms, you can see the room from how it sounds in your head, just from the use of echo and so on. Obviously, somebody thought... There's mileage in Liz, so why don't we look at her theatre company and do a series based on them? Which became Blood and Bruises, which is about this agitprop kind of bit like Legs Akimbo for the League of Gentlemen. You know, this I'd say they were touring, but you know, their, van, <laughs> their van never worked. But you know, attempting to tour. Yes, yeah. Constantly clashing with the local authorities and trying to stage these provocative plays and appearing not to like each other. <laughs> well, I I have been on the fringes of such reactionary... Boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> have been on the fringes of such reactionary theatre before. And, yeah, just from the synopsis, there's a lot mm. to recognise uh, yes, in real life. Yeah. I, I do wonder whether this may have had a very limited audience, though, based on its subject matter. I think it did. It appears to have gone down very badly. I remember <laughs> hearing it at the time and not quite, you know, being aware what it was lampooning because there was the... I, I, See, we're coming back to the fact that it doesn't quite sound right now in the, the way it lampoons, but me and one of my sisters always had things about, on Channel 4 after a certain time of night, there would be programmes where what we called Skull Women came on and held up banners about labour and went, oh, oh, oh! That's, that's what they used to do as far as we were concerned. I should say they weren't actually skeletons. They were sort of very gaunt-looking women with that very short 80s hair. Not people from the dimension of the skeleton people. No. Which is, like, of course, where Skeletor comes Which is from. the canonical explanation for Skeletor. <laughs> a bit like a certain canonical character we could mention, but won't. Yeah, let, let's not go down that road. Yeah, it did seem that it did not review well at all. No. Blanket dislike for it, which is a shame because I think it was quite ambitious, but the problem with it now, and I think the reason it's never resurfaced on Radio 4 Extra or anything, is that in sending up those sort of people, despite the fact I think Colin McLaren was quite sympathetic towards them, because they do get up the noses of pompous people and so on, there's a lot of attacking of their attitudes, trying to make them look stupid themselves. There's a bit of a boot put into charity, feminism, 
race relations even and you can see what they were doing at the time but it doesn't sit right now a bit like me referring to the jokes we used to make about the skull women i say that on the proviso and understanding that i would not say that now even saying that makes me sound like some dim comedy troupe on some clip show saying omg did they really used to read out poetry on the television with big beards but you know hey I was 13, they're fully grown men. So they, and it was decades ago. So who's laughing now, eh? Well, me for one. (laughs) (laughs) So did Radio 3 ever manage to establish this episodic sitcom that they seem to be after? Yes, they did, because the next one they tried after this was Such Rotten Luck, which is, again, you see, they all seem to be about artistic academics. And this was about a guy who was a published historian who had a dream of being a rock star. And his very bad music was made by the Radiophonic Workshop, I think mainly by Elizabeth Parker. But that was Tim Pickett-Smith and Zoe Wanamaker as his wife, who, interestingly, it wasn't a clash relationship. She was kind of... She liked the fact that he did music in his spare time, and she enjoyed the lifestyle they had. It was them against the world rather than them against each other. And that managed a couple of series, actually. And the interesting thing about that is... There is a slight follow-on as well in that it was written by a different writer, but an actor called Benjamin Whitrow, who people might not know his name. They know his face because he's Jimmy's boss in Quadrophenia, which uh, I go into my whole thing about how me and our friend Chris always talk about how when we were kids, that scene, we loved it because Jimmy was sticking it to the man. But as we got older, we think, but no, that's not right. He's, you know, his boss is giving him a second chance and he's like <laughs> sticking two fingers up at him. And it's the amazing hurt face that Benjamin Whitrow does when Jimmy says, you can tie, tie that mile, I have franking machine, all that rather rubbish, I have to come out with the stuff right up your arse. And you know, that really conveys something that you don't get when you're a kid. But he was in Blood and Bruises. I forget his character's name, but he was, he was only allowed in the troop because he had a van that didn't work. <laughs> but he then is a very, very similar character He's Gila, the wife's father, who I don't think is ever actually named in such rotten luck. And it's almost like he can't be the same character because he's a lot more pompous and conventional in such rotten luck. But it's almost like a continuation, really, which is interesting. Again, nobody from Patterson turned up in anything else, no worse luck. <laughs> I would have loved that if Professor Misty had wandered into something else, <laughs> failing to finish his sentences. But it's quite odd that, you know, they did want to have a hit sitcom and you would not think that of Radio 3 at all. No, that seems completely against type for Radio 3. But, you know, fair dues to them for giving it a crack. And now we go from a send-up of a theatre group to a definitely real and perfectly serious one. Daddy? Yes, Desmond, my son? Daddy? I cannot sleep. What is it that ails you, my son, my only son? I keep seeing the moonlight playing on the ceiling and hear the owls talking to their fellows. To their fellows? Daddy? Yes? Tell me a story. Tell me the mighty tales of worlds gone by. Certainly, my son. Picture, if you will, in as it were the mind's eye. Nothing. No little bedroom. No little pillow. No little owls. No little owls. And look, what do you see? (gasps) Queen Victoria. A huge ensemble cast there, as we can... (laughs) As we can plainly hear. Tim, what was that vast theatre company called and what were they doing? That was the National Theatre of Brent presenting All the World's a Globe. Or, I think I've got this right, A History of Man from the First Amoeba to the Second World War. Yes. Which was one of the bizarre projects. I mean, the National Theatre of Brent, I don't know how to explain them so anyone doesn't understand. It's like one of the things like Frank Sidebottom where you either understand it and get it or you don't. If you don't, there's no hope of convincing you, but they kind of emerged out of the same... They weren't really alternative comedy, but the same scene as that. And it was Patrick Barlow and Jim Broadbent pretending to be Desmond Olivier Dingle and Wallace, who were the, the entire company, who did all these... Again, it was it was kind of like the stuff Blood and Bruises were parodying, but it wasn't an attack, it wasn't a parody. They were doing it as if they were this ridiculous two-man company, doing these over-ambitious reenactments of great moments in history on stage with barely any props and they would frequently turn up on BBC Two, Channel Four, sometimes on Radio Four, I think. Seems to remember they were on loose ends quite a lot when that started. It is just straight faced 
there's no twinkle in the eye about it. The comedy is in the fact that they are doing this. There aren't really, I would say, even obvious gags. The whole thing is the gag. All the World's a Globe, oddly, ended up on Radio 3. I couldn't quite work out why. Well, it seems like they started quite a, t- a long time before this programme was made. So I've got, like, 1980, mm. and uh, they started with The Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, which is obviously yes. a lot of fun with two people. <laughs> uh, but that was on stage. So they came in 1990 to Radio 3, five 15-minute shows based on the book uh, All the World's a Globe, which I have read and is hilarious. Like you said, a poorly researched attempt to tell the entire history of the known universe. <laughs> yes. Um, and, it, and it is fantastic in book form. Uh, how mm. did it adapt? Brilliantly, because it was just covered in, you know, ridiculously portentous sound effects and the very, very obvious fact that there were two of them trying to cover everything. <laughs> I mean, that Ben Kingsley's a guest in one episode, which is <laughs> absolutely brilliant. That 15 minutes was perfect for it. Because it doesn't, the joke doesn't overstay its welcome. It's there and then it's gone. And it won a lot of awards, actually. And it was later repeated on both Radio 4 and Radio 2. As we're seeing as a pattern for these shows, is, yes, is, is yeah. actually the, one of the higher compliments you can give it. Something else that's covered in the book is Rowan Atkinson's first real professional work was a series of spoof documentaries called The Atkinson People on Radio 3. Quite often now you see that misattributed to Radio 4, you know, including in biographies of Rowan Atkinson, because, I mean, it was repeated a load of times on Radio 3, but I think it was repeated a few times on Radio 4 as well. But there was actually, again, in the listener, I found a big, long thing about, I think a critic had been a bit too harsh about it, and the head of the station written back saying, we're taking a gamble on somebody who I think is going to be a major talent. I'm sure it's easy to say that when somebody doesn't go anywhere, but imagine that, imagine having seen Rowan Atkinson, he must have been on stage. Mm. And thinking, that boy's going to go far, but he needs to work out a few ideas first. But I think the Atkinson people is brilliant. I think it really, apart from the rock star parody one, which doesn't quite work, but the other ones about the theatre guy, the politician and the philosopher, they're absolutely brilliant. There does seem to have been that sense of, we can do this and then other people can pick up on it if they like. And that's possibly what happened here, because they then did do a lot of work for television, radio, as an actual show in their own right. And did return to Radio 3 to appear on Private Passions. Again, entirely straight-faced. <laughs> and the selection of the Hallelujah Chorus is always used. Whenever they do like a retrospective of Private Passions, they always have that in. Returning for a second to the, uh, the personnel of the National mm. Theatre of Brent. I mean, obviously we'll have to leave out everybody but the top two uh, <laughs> for, for time reasons. Consisted of uh, that unlikely Hollywood heavy hitter, Jim Broadbent, <laughs> who has appeared in every British mm. film ever made ever and probably Game of Thrones. And Patrick Barlow, who hasn't. Yes. So what what else has Patrick Barlow done? I'm not actually sure off the top of my head. Has he devoted himself entirely to being Desmond Olivier Dingle? I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, if he has, then I'd, I'd, I'd arguably say that's the better career right I there. I think you should do some live Googling, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Just to have to note before we move on that my mum would have killed me if we didn't do this one. She's a huge fan of the National Theatre of Brent. So there you go. Consider that an early Mother's Day present. Um, But I wonder if she's also a fan of our next selection. Many of them had been driven insane by the work they were doing and those that could testify claimed that you had helped in that mental decaying process. I never physically beat anybody and you, but we can, all know see it's video, perfectly you easy. can see film footage showing me not beating anybody. You can see film footage. You can see film footage of me sitting in my office trying to get the air conditioning working. And four and a half seconds of film proves that you didn't hit them. Why would I hit my own men unless they were shirking? Well, let's leave that aside. Leave that aside, please. Now, to be fair, I probably messed up a bit here, as I think this may be the best-known selection for a Looks Unfamiliar ever, (laughs) especially to long-time listeners. But, Tim, what is this somewhat familiar show? Well, I don't know if it is that well-known, because that's Chris Morris and Peter Cook as Sir Arthur Street Breebling in Why Bother? It went out in the interval talk slot in that weird stage between... I know he'd done On The Hour, but Chris Morris was really, really just a music radio DJ at that point. And I think it went out a week before the day-to-day. And so I'm not sure people even really noticed it. I mean, it's become better known later because it has been commercially released. I think it may be repeated a couple of times. But it's just this incredible series of 10-minute chats between the two of them. You know, there's this myth that Peter Cook lost his powers in later years. Now, 
Don't get me wrong, I think he got lazy. I think he did things like Peter Cook talks golf balls, which is dreadful. I think he did things for the money, like the Joan Rivers show, where he wasn't really interested. But when he set his mind to something, I mean, don't forget he was writing for Private Eye throughout all this time. There was also, he kept calling Clive Bull's show on LBC, usually a Sven, a fisherman who got stranded in Swiss Cottage because he couldn't get away, he was phoning up this radio show. <laughs> I do remember there was one where he had a proposal for, for live fishing on TV, but he said it might be controversial because a fisherman might drop a fish and say, oh drat. <laughs> Sometimes he would get paired with the right person, like famously there's that Clive Anderson Talks Back where he plays four different guests on it. It's absolutely brilliant because obviously Clive Anderson's not being sycophantic, he treats them like regular guests. And you know, you get things like, I think this was unscripted when, I think is it Norman House that was the famous alien abductee who drew representations of the aliens all looking identical and pointed at one and said, that's the one that took me. <laughs> <laughs> the audience have hysterics at that. And there's a motivation, 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 the three M's. Kind of on the back of that, a producer called Peter Fincham, who'd worked with Peter Cook on something that didn't quite work, where Ludovic Kennedy had interviewed him on BBC Two about the 12 Days of Christmas as Sir Arthur Street Griebling called A Life in Pieces. It didn't quite work because Ludovic Kennedy, you know, was a very dry interviewer. He was just asking questions, expecting Peter Cook to just, you know, go off on one, which he did, but, you know, he had nobody to react against. You know, that there's always that thing about people forget in not only but also, is 50% Dudley Moore. He throws wild cards in. Peter Cook needs that reactive thing, and they tried recording it with John Lloyd, the comedy producer who'd done some improvised material with Peter Cook in the late 70s, which was for a record, but it, for reasons that are too long to go into, it is covered in the appendix in the book, but it didn't quite come off. And then he'd worked with Chris Morris, who he'd done bits of TV, like he did things on BSB on a satire show called Up Your News. But he'd done a pilot for Talkback, who produced Why Bother, called It's Only TV, where he interviewed people who complained about ITV programmes and got them to say very odd things. I mean, there's one in an episode of Blue Jam, his later Radio 1 series, where he plays this extraordinary interview with somebody who, I don't know what he complained about, but he gets him to ascertain whether Mother Teresa or Mother Teresa 2 would be a better role model for younger children. Wouldn't it make a difference <laughs> if they were accompanied by Ronnie Corbett? He'd been impressed by Chris Morris in that, you know, pushing people to say these odd things, and he suddenly thought, what if I put the two of them together? And Chris Morris, by his own admission, wasn't a Peter Cook fanboy. Yeah, we see he liked Derek and Clive when he was at school. I think he said, I saw Bedazzled once, I remember quite liking that. But, you know, there wasn't that much to see or hear of Peter Cook around then. That is so a great film as well. It really it? is. But he'd just gone into it sort of almost on equal terms with him. And from the outset, he jabs at him like a kind of psychotic Jeremy Paxman, like the day-to-day character, the Brass Eye character but a bit more surreal, a bit more cerebral. And they have these bewildering 10-minute chats, but still with their own internal logic about, you know, things like when Sir Arthur's father put him in the prison when he was, I think he was aged five, to toughen him up. And then he escaped and he became the leader of a tribe of bears. And, you know. <laughs> and so I will admit, I knew who Chris Morris was by that point, because okay, he's one of those people where people act like he came from nowhere. But like with Vic and Bob, there'd been this incremental thing. Like, I remember he'd been mentioned in the NME a couple of times because he was doing that hoax thing about backwards messages in records. You know, he was claiming, like, Phil Collins and Madonna had satanic messages in them. But, yeah, and I'd heard by chance he did a one-off show on Radio 1 as a sort of tryout because, you know, he had a few local radio slots by then on Christmas Day in 1990. I remember him at the start of it where he keeps playing what he said backwards and thinking, what? What the hell is this? Then almost immediately after that, On the Hour started on Radio 4, which I, I loved. I was blown away by that. But I'll admit, why bother? It was mainly Peter Cook that drew me to it because it wasn't long after the best of what's left of, not only but also had been on. And I started buying the albums, things like that. And I always loved him. See, that's the thing. I forgot this reactiveness to, you know, things in the news and so on. You know, there was a, what was it at the time? Robert Maxwell sued them and he, he went off and made some stupid film for the money. Like, I think it was Supergirl. And he just sat in the public gallery waving his checkbook at Robert Maxwell throughout <laughs> it. You know, comedy he could pay off whatever fine it was. When they got sued by, this might have been, no, uh, it wasn't the Yorkshire Ripper's wife, but somebody else sued Private Eye. And there's footage of a reporter says, is this the end of Private Eye? And Peter Cook says, 
no, we'll continue. You know, we're going to keep on fighting. We've got an exclusive plan about a vicar who has a nice day out at the seaside. Of course, we will not be naming the vicar. Which is a phrase I do use in everyday conversation. I would say I was more a fan of him at that point. And this was one of many radio things where I went round to people saying, you've got to listen to this thing. And I was like, what? why would I listen to the radio? What are you talking about? And that's and then, 1994 as well. Yes, yeah. And then years later, there was this clamour to get hold of. I mean, one, I think the very first, might be the second Chris Morris site on the internet, was the Why Bother Archive, where someone had encoded them as real audio. You know, how long ago is that? <laughs> no, there was this huge clamour for it. And then, because as I go into in the book, there were all kinds of problems getting it released. Some contractual issues, some just people being apathetic. Chris Morris had had some problems with BBC Radio Collection, as they were called at that point, and tried to get an independent release and it didn't come off. It eventually came out in, I think it was 1999. But even then, I had enormous difficulty getting hold of it in the shops. Some of that might be to do with the the packaging, which is perhaps the worst thing I've ever seen. It is, it is. Um, Featuring Peter Morris and Chris Cook. And what's the illustration? It's the wrong Peter Cook character. Yes, it's a huge purple version of E.L. (laughs) Whisty. As the Peter Cook Appreciation Society said at the time, they'd been told that the cover wouldn't feature Sir Arthur, but Peter Cook in a hat. And they did say, well, we've not even seen the hat. It might be a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Chris Morris is obviously known for controversial content Mm. and his characteristic trickery to try and get it uh, on the air. And I believe some of this happened around the delivery of the third episode to Radio 3. Yes, which is called Christ. (laughs) Good start. Really good start. Pressing Sir Arthur on his research into the theory that Jesus had actually practised the resurrection several times and there was like fossilised evidence of it, which it's been claimed wasn't on the hour sketch that Armando Iannucci said no to. And it takes a lot for him to say no to something. They did this and then delayed delivery of the tape to Radio 3 until the very last minute. And Peter Fincham has claimed that the first he knew of it was when he was driving home and listening to it in his car. And he thought, ah, we're in trouble tomorrow. But amazingly, nothing happened. I think partly because the audience are so small and partly because I think Radio 3's audience probably likes to think of themselves as, you know, even if that joke bothers me, I am too intellectual to get offended <laughs> by it. <laughs> but it's it's quite a, a moment. Why, Bobby? It's probably the highest profile thing, as you say, in the whole book, really. And it seems odd now to think you know that was on Radio 3 and yet even then Chris Morris hasn't been on all national BBC radio stations <laughs> with the show and if you read the book you find that somebody else who has been is a very surprising name but of course we do need to leave some secrets for the book so at this stage we'll move on from uh, Chris Cook sorry I mean Chris Morris I was reading that awful cover again <laughs> we move on from Chris Morris to one of his most notable collaborators are you still bothered by the clock ticking a shudder from the fridge the dog barking to be let back in the house your neighbours out in the street talking about switching to broadband can you just make out the noise of a favourite cousin leaving a very very long message on the answer machine, one that sounds quite urgent and possibly dreadful today we have the opportunity to listen to music as intently as never before there's now an almost unspoken instruction that as we listen we ought to do so perfectly and with unspoilt focus but there's no recognition here that's not really what happens. Now, there's a comedian who never fails to get me rolling in the aisles. Tim, who is he and what was he doing there? Well, I'm surprised that, you know, uh, he didn't actually mention you rolling in the aisles in one thing we're covering this. Because <laughs> that was Amanda Yanucci who did a number of monologues for Radio 3, almost unnoticed. At a time when I don't think his career was in the best place it's ever been in in the early 2000s because he, you know, he'd had the, the hassle over his Channel 4 series, which was edited post-September the 11th, so some sketches didn't make sense. I have to say at this stage that the Armando Iannucci shows is my high watermark for television comedy, I think. It was, it was just stunning. Oh, it really was, but it almost didn't get a commercial release. It was a, there was a letter-writing campaign by a Chris Morris fan site which I'm led to believe actually did get that release on the table. It was an awfully long time uh, it between was. broadcast and DVD. And apparently it was sat there, you know, ready to go with a hard drive full of extras. It was just somebody somewhere had thought, ah, oh, nobody wants to know. But I mean, it ties in with, have you ever seen, have you ever come across the hidden extra on the Adam and Joe DVD? 
I don't think so, no. I Where do have that. But... They phone up Channel 4 as Urban Chaos Collective, basically asking if that programme with the two men with the T-shirts is ever going to come out on DVD. And the guy on the other end goes out of his way to say, uh, maybe you mean Jackass. There's a program called Jackass that's very, very popular. And like, no, no, it, it had Star Wars toys doing things. You know, this was 2004, unless it was 2001. And he says, oh, well, there was a thing called the Adam and Joe show, but that was on a very long time ago. That yeah. does not seem a long time. but No, but, but you know, there was that attitude at that point that, you know, that's done, we've moved on, we talk about the new thing. So I think that's why that took a long time to come out. I mean, he'd had that disastrous topical sci-fi show Gash on Channel 4, which I think, did it last a week? See, I mm. I wasn't even aware of that. Like, yeah. I consider myself quite a big fan of Armando Iannucci. Mm. When, I, when I read about that in Lark's Sending, it just that didn't seem a good fit for him it at all. It really wasn't. No, it was almost... I don't like saying this, it felt almost like he was a teacher with an uncontrollable class. Because mm. there were some people who've gone on to do very good stuff being not very good in it. You know, like, it was that mm. post-11 o'clock show thing. As well as that, the had problems with the BBC over various things. I don't think the second series of Alan Partridge was a fun experience for, you know, just for gruelling production reasons. And it was almost like, I mean, a couple of years earlier, Chris Morris had, you know, I could talk about this for hours on its own. After the Brass Eye controversy, he'd just gone back to Radio 1 and said, let me play some records in the middle of the night and I'll do comedy over the top. And that was Blue Jam. And that he described at the time as rebooting. Yeah. Now that was... He needed to restart out of the public eye. And I kind of get the sense it's a bit like this with Armando, because suddenly from nowhere, I remember noticing at Radio Times that as part of, was it between the ears? But it was one of the, there's an insert in another show, where he's walking around the gallery of all these. Now, again, Joe's kind of lost in time. It was that famous thing about there was that synth module at that point called Vintage Keys, which I think Blur used a lot, Circuit Park Life, where it had all these obsolete keyboards, like, you know, the Odnes Martinot, the Mellotron, Harmonium, all kinds of things like that. But he was, like, talking about, you know, there was a, a piano made entirely out of ice that melted while you were playing it. There was, a, and players were known to get frostbite by them. <laughs> Uh, there was one made entirely out of diamonds where it looked beautiful but sounded dreadful. And was, I can't even remember because this made me win so much. Something about Stalin had wired up a piano to <laughs> electrodes on people. And it was, it was incredibly funny. Then he did a couple more of them. There was mobile phones off, which is what I was alluding to in the intro there, which was a wonderful monologue about his experience of being a classical and opera buff, but as an outsider, you know, because he's originally working class. He's both Glaswegian and Italian and you know in some ways you're having to to dress up to fit into this elite that you don't really fit in it's all about his observations about a kind of culture that's not openly hostile but just from its demeanor makes it very clear that you're not supposed to be there yeah and it goes into this whole thing about imagining if some aliens came down and sat next to him you know well they enjoy it too he rips into the i See, I, I have no idea whether this is a real thing or not. I assume it is something called Jazz in the Foyer, where they <laughs> have sort of Dixieland musicians tootling away while you're coming in, which, you know, I like jazz, but that does not sound right to me. There was also Living with Marla, which is about his reasons for preparing Marla about other composers, but also Use Your Ears, which is the one that you've highlighted, which is about ways of hearing and his relationship with music. It seems to be dealing with the question of how, given its longer form and its mm. uh, sort of audio demands, yes. classical music lovers can incorporate listening to their chosen genre into their day, which is, it's interesting to me, because as somebody who really, I, I, I listen to quite a lot of punk music, yeah. and so we're looking at sub-three-minute yeah, plus <laughs> it's not exactly difficult to fit that in between uh, yeah. between engagements. You can't exactly you know? wash the dishes to you suffer by napalm death, can you? I did try it once, and I, <laughs> the, the results weren't fantastic. But yeah, it's it kind of I suppose it's thinking of classical music as something other than background music, which is is what mm. it's always been to me. Uh, I think it's I think it's great that somebody's gone out and done a you know an examination of that. Yeah, well, how often do you find it talked about as just music? You know, there's always this other filter on top of it, or you know, to do with dressing up in evening wear. You know, like why can't you just listen to it? People don't put on like a, a tie dye poncho to listen to Caravan. Do they? <laughs> 
people don't dress up as smacking the heads from red dwarfs unless they they farm death. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, we did actually see what was basically smacking the heads live a couple of years ago. It was, it was quite an experience. Yeah. Um, the version of On they did was, yeah. was even longer than that presented in the, uh, in the show. Yeah, I've, I've got to say, I, I, this is kind of coming full circle actually now I think about it. This again is Radio 3 almost needling its own uh, its mm. own fo- foibles and those of its uh, listeners. Yeah. Um, I, I've been to see exactly one live opera and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the opera, I enjoyed mm. the uh, the story that was told, the, the musicianship, the acting, the singing, all of that kind of thing. But the best thing for me was we smuggled a bag of cans in and we were just kind of mm. clanking our way through this performance. And I thought that what I am enjoying the most here is, um, I guess, uh, subverting the, yeah. usual, the usual tropes of watching opera. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like, funny we should be talking about Armando at the moment, because he did actually write an opera that was broadcast on Radio 3, where he was asked to write the libretto for an opera. And being him, you know, rather than great historical romantic themes, he thought, I'll do it about how abundant plastic surgery is and how it might go out of control. <laughs> Skin Deep, which is the name of it, is a gruelling listen for different reasons to the ones opera normally is. <laughs> You do need a sick bag ready at some points of it. This seems to be part of a loose series of one-off shows mm. uh, that Armando Iannucci did yeah. for, for Radio 3. There's about, kind of, we've mentioned three or four of them there. I think there's maybe one or two yeah. one or two others. And it strikes me that that's, that in itself is quite Radio 3-ish. Sort of not not really caring for the conventions of a series or sort of yeah. you know, time slots and that kind of thing. It's, it's something that comes back again and again reading through the, the book yeah. is that things just seem to go out when they go out. Yes, I mean, that's uh, one thing that drove me almost mad doing it. You know, and I picked Radio 3 because people have said to me after I did Fun at One, the Radio 1 comedy book. First of all, people said, oh, you're going to do Radio 4? And I was like, no, because I will go insane. You know, there was so much to cover. You would have to write so much about, like, I've no interest in Claire in the community, but it's run for like 10 years or something. And I, I can't imagine writing that much about that. Some friends of mine didn't really go insane writing a book about weekending, which there was plenty to say about. But it went on for so long and involved so many people. And then people said, what about Radio 2? And like, well, it's not really a, a through narrative there. You know, it's just what was on was on. But Radio 3, I thought, there is a story here. There is this whole thing of them raiding the fringes. But one person they use quite a lot and this is why I'm mentioning this, was Ivor Cutler, the kind of singer, poet, you can't even really call him either of those, he was what he was. But he did a number of series for Radio 3, for which the transmission day, date and time appears to have been, yeah. And it <laughs> drove me mad trying to nail them all, that make sure I've got the first broadcast of each one. To be fair, that is very Ivor. <laughs> to be broadcast like that. I just kept looking at Why is that one on the five past eight and that one twenty past ten? I don't understand. Don't these people realise that people will be researching books about them in you know twenty years' I know. time? And, uh, you know, the least you can do is make it easy to research. <laughs> Nobody's researching books about... Well, they actually are researching books about all the operas and things. So, yeah, I've kind of messed that up a bit. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a good note to, uh, to close on there, Tim. Yeah. So the, the book is uh, The Lark's Ascending. Yeah. Rush out and order it from... TimWorthington.org. Excellent. Yeah. I've been Gareth Irons. It's been an honour. Thank you, Tim. And I've been Brock from the Hand of Barbera Godzilla Ascending, a complete guide to comedy on BBC Radio 3, featuring Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Sue Townsend, Rowan Atkinson, Peter Tinniswood, N.F. Simpson, Armando Yanucci, the National Theatre of Brent, Ivor Cutler, Leonard Brossiter, John Sessions, Kenneth Williams, Joe Orton, Dave Renwick, Andrew Marshall, the BBC Radio 3 Workshop, the King Singers, the Beatles and more. More details, timworthington.org. Fall into the old talkback hat trick uh, <laughs> trap.